I'm Janan Marashligil in Amsterdam. And I'm Laura Empana in Vienna. And this is Not Loud Enough, a podcast that delivers authentic conversations about actions we take to build a more inclusive and empowering world. Brought to you by two very good friends and their guests across various industries. Today on the podcast, uh, we are welcoming uh, Aurore Paligo. Um, Aurore holds a PhD in linguistics from the University of Namur in Belgium and a specialization in advanced analytics and machine learning from the Ubicom Code Academy in the Netherlands. She has more than eight years of experience working with qualitative, quantitative and experimental research methods and is currently working as a data and analytics consultant at Positive Thinking Company. And she will tell us more about all this. As a linguist turned data specialist, she cares about delivering meaningful insights and human-centric visualizations. Her research interest currently lies at the intersection between tech and social sciences, and part of her free time is spent exploring digital humanities. She's also a R ladies enthusiast and a keen tableau developer. Oh, you're going to have to tell me more about that because I have no idea what a tableau developer is. Welcome to Not Loud Enough, dear Oh. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome, Aurora. Hi. Hi, Laura. We are so happy to have you because this is something Laura and I actually know very little about all these topics and we are very curious about your your experience but first we would like our listeners to know more about you because you have a very interesting story because what brought you to data analysis from the world of linguistics from the world of academia from Belgium to the Netherlands and now back to Belgium we want to know everything about you all. Please tell us. Well, uh, thanks for having me with you, uh, connecting uh, Brussels, Amsterdam and, and Vienna together. It feels really good. And I'm happy to share uh, a story that uh, also, Janan, um, you've been involved in it uh, for the last chapter. So it's, it's really nice to uh, think about all the thing we shared and, and how um, I arrived where I'm at now. Um, a tableau developer, what it is? <laughs> Maybe let's start with that. <laughs> uh, that's my main activity actually at the moment. Uh, so as a consultant, I'm now working in a telecommunication uh, company and my role is to uh, develop um, metrics and to visualize that, to report them. Um, and Tableau is the name of um, a business intelligence tool that uh, delivers insights through data visualization. And so I'm really busy with uh, building graphs at the moment, but also thinking about my own practice 
as you said, coming from this uh, background in literature, in how I can use data and data visualization to uh, to build meaning, share meaning, and also question uh, the data itself. Uh, so how did I get there? Uh, well, first of all, uh, the first question is maybe how I got into academia because it's it's a story by itself. Uh, I was it was really not part of the the plan uh, when I started my study. It was well more than ten years ago. Um, I started a bachelor in uh, in literature and uh, Spanish. I was really hesitant when I started. Uh, I wanted to be an illustrator and then I also wanted to be a biologist. So, you know, uh, arts, uh, literature, uh, science, in a way now, as I reflect upon it, are starting to mix again, which re feel really nice. But then I, I started this uh, bachelor in, in Namur. I, I was the average student interested uh, I, I like literature a lot it's uh, played a huge part in, in my life overall but then I, I had um, a really impactful course about linguistics and I would say that this is where it all started for me and what I mean uh, started I mean uh, seeing myself as a researcher uh, which is something unknown. Well, from where I come, uh, I think I was uh, the first children of my family to go to the university. So it's not like we have a representation of what being a doctor means. So for me, being a doctor, you could either be uh, a medical doctor or a doctor in, in law. That was my <laughs> full representation of what it was. But then, uh, luckily, I was uh, in a small university, but that was really involved into research and also had a special program uh, about linguistics, sign language linguistics, and also a specific, uh, a very strong, let's say, theoretical uh, background there about linguistics. It was really, I can say, an intellectual revelation in the sense that I can say that it, it changed the person uh, that I am now and then um, in fact what really got me into linguistics is already working with data, linguistic data, as a way to, uh, in a very clinical way, so that uh, language was the medium between us and the world that we were studying by uh, modelization. So uh, all that we studied came around this idea that reality or the object does not exist per se, but is built by uh, the gaze of the observer. And so for me, that was a really uh, uh, meaningful uh, realization. And with that, I had a strong formation also in other social sciences, uh, disciplines like philosophy and then epistemology. And it all came together for me realizing that uh, this is what I wanted to do, and then uh, I decided without hesitation to follow a master in Brussels about linguistics that would prepare me to become a researcher. I received a grant to pursue a research with a project that was starting at the time about documenting French-Belgian sign language, which is the sign language uh, spoken by 
the deaf community of Brussels and Wallonia. Uh, and I was working there under the direction of Florence Meurant, who is doing an incredible work. And basically, uh, we were uh, a group of uh, four or five researchers and deaf uh, teachers and, and then uh, deaf annotators and translators. And little by little, the team was growing around this idea that was uh, gathering us is how can we how can we represent, how can we document in a fair way uh, sign language? To study it, uh, to archive it, uh, to use it as a, a linguistic tool, uh, to teach, etc., um, etc. Et uh, but we, we did, uh, I knew nothing about data. <laughs> And neither did my, my colleague. So it all started by us recording uh, deaf people in the studio, uh, which was, let's say, uh, not the easy part, but um, a part of the process that is quite uh, easy. But wh what is more complicated are questions like, but uh, who do we invite in, in our studio? Uh, to create this, uh, this corpus. And then how do we transform uh, all this video into a, a machine-readable material that we can then uh, study? And so it was all a, a fantastic adventure and really uh, we had hands on the data all the time. And I had the chance back then, it was in 2015, to go for uh, a five-month internship at, at the Radboud University of Nijmegen. Uh, where uh, I collaborated with the team there um, and they already had uh, a more advanced corporate than ours. Uh, and then I, it was like a gift, like all the data that we were building in Belgium, I could play with it, start to play with it um, in a more advanced state. And then uh, for me, <laughs> I was feeling like a child. Oh, okay, so this, this is it when we can go until then and we can ask those questions. And so we can ask questions in, in a way that was not possible until now in sign language research. So that was fascinating because without the data, well, linguists of, of course were, were limited. Uh, some uh, connections were starting to be created between us and then the IT uh, faculty. I was feeling really uh, at my place in between those words, uh, between uh, languages and tech and having this curiosity about the data and then understanding both uh, languages. Uh, and then when I finished my PhD in 2018, I just realized that for the new question, the new research questions that I had in mind, I, I wanted to, um, yeah, to go to, to have new tools in, in my hands that would really allow me to uh, answer questions that I was thinking, imagining, but without the technical possibilities. I, I had the ideas, but let's say not the tools. Uh, and also... Well, it was a, a time, I would say, after my, my PhD, what I, I was not sure if I wanted to go further for specialization, uh, follow a postdoc or do something else. And then I really decided to, to take the time to then um, explore something new, maybe reopen the perspective because doing a PhD and a research is really much an, an act of, of focus and then you specialize and then... Uh, and I wanted to reopen maybe a few some a few perspectives, but also um, yeah, I I I I wanted to be surprised maybe. So that's how Janan, you entered my story. <laughs> Very happy I entered your story because you moved to Amsterdam to study uh, to study this at Ubicum. Uh, how was that experience of uh, so because 
studying in academia is quite a very different uh, way of uh, yeah of just studying and learning and getting knowledge than what you did here for six it was a six months program right yeah 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 well, uh, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I really enjoyed it because the, the philosophy of the program and, and this is what I was looking for. Uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Back then, uh, when I finished my PhD, I, I was at first looking inside academia of ways where I could get those skills. Uh, and I searched for a long time, but nothing was really quite what I was expecting. So th this is when... I went for uh, Ubicum because it was different, it was practical, uh, and it would give me, uh, let's also let me be in a context with people coming from different backgrounds and really have this uh, tech uh, feel uh, atmosphere that I wanted to discover. I was feeling that they were something, there was something there. Um, but yeah, I, I love the bootcamp. Um, the program was really much, uh, well, it was super intensive, but really enjoyable. It's really precious to have for once a parenthesis in your life that you can just dedicate to learning a new skill. And of course, you have to organize yourself because when you're 30, you don't um, decide to take a six months leave uh, just for learning uh, like that. But it was really worth it. Um, and what I loved it, it was really a learning by uh, doing experience and it resonates with my way of learning. When you're in academia, you don't have a, a past. So you, you, you're always confronted to errors, bugs and, and, and questions. And the questions are the drive of you wanted to go further. And what I enjoyed in, in this data program is that I realized that yes, data is, is really a way uh, to uh, open new questions. So um, for me, it sounds like the perfect uh, fit of uh, always have something to uh, to feed my curiosity, uh, but also um, much, much more. I, I, I did, I was surprised way beyond what I, I think uh, I would uh, be at the beginning. Uh, so that's the, the fantastic part of it, I would say. Um, first of all, meeting the people, uh, having the time to go around in Amsterdam. The thesis was done, so I didn't have to feel guilty about, you know, going out and not writing the last chapter. But um, the thing is that I realized my, my ambition at, at the beginning was to learn how to be autonomous with me doing statistics, to be a good researcher. And then I realized the data was way broader than that, that I could with it uh collaborate with uh doers makers uh create applications create visualizations uh develop new technologies uh and so that the possibilities and the, their combinations were in fact endless and uh i felt really inspired also by the tech community i started to explore uh what played a huge huge role for me at this point was going to um, a programmers group and I joined the R ladies group, which is a, uh, a group of ladies. Well, not only ladies, but it's organized by ladies and um, with a strong emphasis on uh, diversity, inclusiveness and empowering women in, in tech careers uh, that are still uh, unrepresented there. Uh, and R is the, the programming language that I was learning. It, it's really well known for data science. So th there was this group and then also the Women in AI community, 
uh, that push, pushed me even further. Um, uh, Woman in AI is, is focused as, uh, let's say, Our Ladies is great for the workshops and everything that you will learn and how you can gather and then geeking around and then, you know, I, I, I like it. And Woman in AI is also about having a vision and, and they're, they're seeing yourself as a founder. Uh, and a creator and it, it really I think gave me a, a shift of perspective because in research in a way you always have to wait one year or two years to dare starting your your uh, program or your research and here the focus was on but how okay so you have an idea and your ideas can have an impact in the world and then how can you find investors for example so it, it's a really different uh, mindset uh, also very new to me uh, that challenged me quite a lot. I do not feel like uh, this is the path for me right now, but I have this in my mind, you know. So just for this, it was a great, great gain. You talked earlier about uh, working with sign language or in sign language. Um, and hearing you talking, I uh, had this first question coming. Um, and that is, I, I wanted to ask you how... Inclus how included are um, are these communities in the uh, creation of the technologies that are um, prepared for them? Yes, that's that's a really good question, um, a really really good topic, and also a difficult one because it's it's linked to uh, uh, the history of of deaf people. Um, uh, so usually deaf people uh, have been and are still excluded from the conversations uh, or when they are included, uh, their voice is still unheard. Uh, so it is a really important topic um, and uh, that we also have in the sign language uh, linguist community. How do we make sure that uh, becoming a linguist is accessible to uh, to deaf people, that education is accessible to deaf people, that the way we um, organize our conferences uh, are also accessible. So these are really um, important questions. Uh, but concerning the technology, well, of course, AI is fascinating and tech is fascinating because it gives us uh, the dream that uh, everything will become possible and we've seen all the progress of automatic translation for example and i think that it's it's, it's truly amazing but uh about the sign language history you know uh everybody that uh, like me um has been working with uh sign languages uh receives an email of a friend or colleague thinking about us like, hey, look at what I've seen in, in the news and there's this great new invention and it's a magic glove and it's going to translate uh, sign languages automatically. And, you know, I, I'm still on this very polite way of, well, thanks for uh, thinking about me. But then now the, the linguist is me wants to say, hey, but, you know, how I much AI, but... Uh, let's 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 reflect on the concept of um, the magic glove. Well, many of these inventions were um, uh, along the, the years gained from uh, public attentions uh, because uh, regularly uh, a tech student um, specialist in AI would think about that as okay, so we we have the technologies. 
uh, we can put uh, sensors and capture uh, information about the movement of the hands and then we can translate is not the proper word but we can uh, match those gestures those shapes of the hands of the fingers with uh, the equivalent of a sign or of a letter that is then uh, considered as a translation of a word uh, and it's really fancy because it works right you have the glove and then you can finger spell so for the, the people who do not who cannot see me what is finger spelling it's a way to um, use uh, your hand to visualize uh, letters, it's like a visual alphabet. So it's the A, it's the B, it's the C. So you have different way of finger spelling. In, uh, for example, in American Sign Language, you use only one hand and you see that the C shape looks like the letter C. But then in British Sign Language, uh, it's a bit more complex and then you use pointing of one finger on the other finger palm to do the same thing. Um, but so this magic glove, the idea behind this is that you would put it in and then you would recognize the shape of the C and then match it to the letter C, right? But uh, how is that improving communication and for who? Which is also an important question. Uh, first of all, um, the idea is based on uh, the misconception that sign languages are only using the hands. But sign languages use the whole body that has a grammatical value and the space has a grammatical value, the eye gaze, the movement of your eyebrows and the movement of your torso can have a real grammatical value. When I say that, it's not just for making it sound like complicated, but because it, it's real, like the direction of, of your gaze can define different grammatical values. Uh, if you raise your eyebrows, you can have a marker for asking questions, for example. So it, it's not anecdotal at all. And so even though if we could, which we cannot at the moment, capture perfectly the movement of the hand, then we would totally miss the other important aspect of the embodied language. So first of all, there's this. And then, uh, well, of course, you have the question of uh, how much data do we have uh, to train the, the algorithm, but let's imagine that's not an issue. The other issue is an understanding of um, the needs of the deaf community. And so when we focus on the glove, literally what we say is you as a deaf people, you will have to adapt your signing so that my machine can recognize you so that I can have a translation. So, yeah, what about uh, doing it the other way around? And there are some technologies, like, working the other way around. And so I'm thinking about uh, um, a guy who started uh, tech. Uh, he has a deaf sister, so he knows about the context very well. And he started to do a live captioning system. So you are deaf, and then you can go to the hearing person who has to adapt and then articulate a bit more clearly, and then you can have some kind of live uh, subtitle. So, you know, it exists, but you have to know the, the concepts, and more importantly than that, what is important now for the deaf community is really having the resources uh, to have access, fair access to every area of society, and for that you need uh, interpreters, sign language interpreters, and for having good quality interpreting, you have to have material uh, or uh, to to train them. And I believe that having a good data, like the, the corpus that uh, is being built at the University of Namur is um, 
uh, a good example of how we can use tech and, uh, and, and data and linguistics to provide something that is relevant for the community uh, and for the community itself. In the first stages of my research, we were building this, uh, this uh, database that is a library, but the story doesn't stop there. The idea now is to make of this library a, a full bilingual contextual dictionary, uh, a bit like the one that you have on Lingui, and to make it accessible through text, but also through uh, sign recognition based from a webcam. But the idea here is so that, imagine that you're a kid at a deaf school and then you want to know how to learn a bit more about French, uh, and you have a sign in mind, you don't know how to translate it, and you want to access the full nuances and diversity of the language, then you could use this interface to enter the dictionary and see different videos of real context of signs of other signers uh, and how they have been translated in French and all the nuances of the language. So it's not like we have a letter and we match it. It's like we, we enter the linguistic process of, through this tool, having the possibility to say, for example, that's the one that's uh, on the introduction page of, of their website, but um, for uh, the word French word personne, you can have different meaning, right? Uh, but also in science, you can have different signs. So how can you magically match one with one another? You cannot, but what you can do is, is learn the language through um, putting side by side the different nuances uh, of the word person or the signs person and all the different uh, meanings. Uh, and, and, and that's the perfect combination of what can be uh, done with the inclusion from the start of uh, the community that is involved of its primary um, beneficiaries, let's say, and yes, uh, the, the specialists that are not only, of course there are, there is Anthony Clev from the university, the IT uh, faculty, who is responsible for the, the AI and the tech part, but then in collaboration with uh, Laurence Morand, who is the head of uh, the linguistic department, and I think that's the way to go. So I'm really looking for projects that are bringing uh, people from all the different worlds together. I think that's the key for more inclusion. I totally agree. And, and uh, going back a bit to, to, to what you just said, that um, maybe we also, uh, everyone else, can make an effort to have more accessibility. I'm very interested, for example, uh, to uh, create accessibility through the content um, there are now tools also on social media, um, Twitter Able, for example, um, and there are little things that everybody can do that uh, can can uh, help to include these communities also. Um, uh, for example, I don't know, uh, th th when you write a hashtag, you just write camel uh, cases, for example, and that makes it easier for, for these communities to, for these people to to read or uh, be more conscious about how to use emojis uh, because the same they are the, the description of each emoji is, is very different than when you write when you include 
like thousands of emojis in, in a text it, it becomes really hard to 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 be read uh, or the the usage of alt text uh, for for images so description of the images for so I started to be more more conscious about that and started to get a bit more into that and, and make my my content more accessible and the way we communicate be more inclusive and more accessible as well so this this yeah it's it's very important I think Yes, that, that's really, uh, really interesting, really important. Uh, that's something I try to be mindful of as well. Uh, and I see that uh, on the internet, more and more creators are uh, proposing subtitles, for example, for their videos or uh, transcripts of uh, their yeah, um, recordings. And then you can rely on... On, on tools like uh, voice recognition to, to make it quicker because of course when you're an independent um, content creator you have always a question of the resources and the time that it takes uh, but I think it's it's really nice to yeah to, to, to have this reflection actually because these are small things that everyone can do and everyone can do it in uh, through the social media so it's it's not much effort from our side I think it's just um, it's a matter of being more more conscious about it and uh, just uh, just um, apply it and I, I think a lot of people are still not aware of this or companies I saw now there's also a discussion more companies are starting to get interested into into that and making their websites more accessible uh, their content and, and so on so this this is great to see to see that as well the work you do with, with data what is actually data what are we talking about whose data are we talking about who collects that data what do we do with that data who creates that data do i create data what happens to the data i create what do you do with it as, a, as an expert all these questions for me it's it's so big sometimes we get lost we say data 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 and then it, data controls everything AI is controlling our lives, uh, algorithms are deciding. So you say all these words we use daily, and I'm not sure everybody actually knows what we're talking about. So could you maybe guide us a bit into this and explain us what you mean when you talk about data? What do you mean about data? Yes, well, data, that's true. It, it's, a, it's a buzzword. Um, was I dis when I even when I describe myself as a data analyst, it's a bit of a rebranding. Like I'm a researcher, I know about data and the research process because of my work, and now I know some programming, so I call myself a data analyst. You know, <laughs> but um, yeah, what is data? I think that's um, not a trivial question uh, because I think the data is behind everything that we. Uh, uh, that we do well. I think it's it's the only way in a, in a sense only way to approach reality because there, as I was saying before, uh, I don't think that there is reality per se. So we need to to build something. Uh, I see in data a real a gesture, uh, a gesture of cutting something, deciding to put something in and something out. Um, and based on that, you have uh, decisions uh, or, or not. Sometimes you have uh, bias that are unconscious, but you can have uh, conscious decisions to select the data. 
And then I would say that data is what will feed your uh, intelligence. Uh, and there is an example that I, uh, your artificial intelligence. <laughs> uh, there is an example that I think is really funny about AI. Uh, well, I, I don't believe that AI is uh, going to rule the world. Uh, I believe that we do have the choice as AI users, as AI providers, uh, inventors to um, end them in uh, ethical conversation. And this is my, my perspective. And this is um, why I in Amsterdam I chose to collaborate with uh, actors like uh, TAP or uh, the City Exchange, uh, City Innovation Exchange Lab that are all about using data to build smart cities, but then... Um, integrate them in an in inclusive and ethical view about the society. But so, yeah, go, going back to my example. All right, so this is uh, a lot of artificial intelligence is being built in the realm of uh, visual uh, computer vision, visual recognition. And there was this algorithm uh, that was designed to recognize um, uh, fish, fishes. All right, so quite simple task. But then we gave the fish a certain sort of data. And in fact, the database was a database of fishermen that were proudly um, holding a fish in their hands. Uh, so the it worked very well uh, because then what the machine learned was to, you know, recognize the fingers holding the fishes. How do you recognize a fish in the sea if it's not a dead fish in the, the hands of a fisherman. So this is, this, is, this is what it is when we say it is uh, intelligence, you know? This is the intelligence we create, and it's fantastic, but it, it is as limited as it is. So all the power we can give him is through the data that we feed him. Thinking about this, this data is, I don't have all the answers, but I, I believe that it's really important for people from the humanities and philosophers and then um to take part to be active or to the citizens to be active in this conversation and, and discuss what we put in the data and uh, how we make intelligences that are not maybe that <laughs> uh, limited in a way i had these discussions a lot in the literary translation field you know because translation uh ai translation is actually doing I think it's working really well in many in many ways. When when you use a tools like DeepL or Google Translate, it's extraordinary what they what what the yeah. machine is capable of of translating. You know, really complex sentences, and so it is it it, it is getting scary a bit as a translator. You think hmm, maybe in fifty years time they won't need me anymore. <laughs> but these discussions we have actually, it's very interesting what you just said about. Mm, the need to discuss between different disciplines. So we cannot leave the discussion only to data scientists or to programmers or to IT specialists. We really need to include the humanities. We really need to include people working in literature. We need to include people working with languages. And, with you know, this is really uh, important. And I think this is something you advocate for throughout your work. Huh? Yeah, yeah, this is, this is a really... Uh, the the key message and it, 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 it going back to where I come from it's 
uh, yeah, you know, at the beginning when I was starting to look for a job as a data analyst slash scientist, I was a bit ashamed of saying, hey, I have a bachelor in literature, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then, uh, well, thankfully, I, I got, well, uh, this great experience working here in Amsterdam um, with uh, TAP, uh, which is a smart city uh, initiative that builds prototypes for uh, the city of Amsterdam, all the cities as well. Uh, and then I realized that uh, in fact, it is what brings me value when working with other data specialists. Uh, it is the very thing I was ashamed of that really is 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 uh, bringing a different perspective, I think, on, on the table. Um, but it took me time to, to recognize it, but now I, I cannot go back and unsee that. And there is a great book I just received this morning. It's called Data Feminism by Catherine Dignacio and Lorraine Klein. And I haven't read at all, but I just found a table that really sums up how I see it. And it's a table between what's the difference between data ethics and data justice with the idea that we can do more. And so the authors uh, are comparing every time um, to two sides of the story. Like, um, And I really like this one that says, okay, so if you want to have a concept that secure the power, you can just understand the algorithm. But then if you want to uh, integrate concepts that challenge power, then you also need to understand history, culture, and context. What can you do with that data? One of the things we can do is data visualization. Mm, I love thinking about data visualization because it's, it's really powerful. And you have this say, uh, uh, an image is worth a thousand words, which I partly agree with, I partly disagree with. Um, yeah, I agree with because, yes, you can represent things. Uh, well, of course, through sign languages, well, one of the things that I really like is, is visual communication. And I think that uh, visual meaning is something that is really strong. But what we, what we forget is that, that first of all, uh, numbers are not just numbers. Uh, they are not realities. It's a construct. Uh, there are decisions that are made on those numbers. And the visualization is is a, um, uh, a story, well a, a point of view uh, a choice. Uh, well, there is really the idea of uh, we we add a layer on top of that. I I uh, I have the idea that there is a lack of uh, education about liter data literacy. It's not because that it's visual, that it's transparent, uh, that the meaning is. Uh, that you can read it as is. Uh, so you have to have the keys to be able to read it. So that's one of the aspects towards uh, in inclusion, more inclusion, but also as from the point of view of the data designer, let's say, uh, there is the idea that you, you are the one making the choices of what is the story that you want to tell. And both maps are valid representation of the reality, you know? But what do you want to know? What are the fine grain... What are the nuances that you want to add, or and uh, so these are, but also sometimes even more basic things like uh, is it readable or is it uh, is your public uh, going to more aesthetical things? But is your public colorblind, for example? 
<laughs> how do you read it? Uh, how do you read it? Do you include it uh, in in a way, or did you put a legend? Uh, do you explain what is the number behind it, and then? Uh, can people themselves play with the data? Now we have so many tools and that's why I like Tableau, but others as well, where people are given the possibility to play with the data and create this story. So, for example, we can imagine having this graph and, and going for it and looking for the story behind it uh, ourselves. And data visualization, I think, is really important to very important point of the, um, the data generation process, such as, first of all, the exploration part of it, and then after that, the uh, uh, communication part of it. And my idea is that we should uh, encourage people, well, I mean, I'd like to uh, generate curiosity in people to, to share, to look themselves for those visualizations. I'm thinking, for example, about uh, Google Trends, It's a really easy way uh, that you can play with, very visual, uh, and you can look for numbers, trends in, across uh, different countries, different periods of times. But then uh, when playing with that, I was thinking a lot about data visualization, how to make it meaningful. And it's, it's not obvious, like the visual can give you answers, like part of the answer, not everything, but part of the answer. It can tell you, hey, there's something that's happening here. And this is really important in in the knowledge process to have always something to that draws uh, where your your mind can focus. But then to make it relevant, I think that it's important whenever we have a visualization to make comparisons. Uh, it's really difficult, I realize, to talk about visuals without having the visuals uh, with me to show the examples. But the idea is that yeah, you have to. Um, Uh, to make it meaningful, like uh, giving to the people the, the, the possibility to know what is the data for and what is it that you are representing. Are you talking about humans? Uh, are you talking about uh, rates? Uh, <laughs> we don't know. So it's important to communicate about this. And you've been doing a lot of interesting work. One of, one of these includes social media and collecting data through Instagram on the marine terrain here in Amsterdam, so in the center of the city. Um, can you tell us more about that specific project and what was the role of using social media and for what purpose and for who? So yes, this project is a portrait of how I call it, a portrait of Amsterdam urban uh, beaches. And um, I came up with the idea because at that we were working with uh, building smart city prototypes and so addressing architecture and urbanism and mobility in a modern way that includes both uh, the citizens and the technology. And I was interested uh, to see also uh, the perspective uh, to bring the human perspective on, on the table. So this is really me with my um, uh, digital humanities question, let's say. Uh, I wanted to um, uh, understand how uh, using social media data can inform us about how uh, citizens living in those smart cities uh, inhabit those places and how we live in there, uh, how many communities are sharing the spaces and what they do in those spaces. 
And so this is a bit uh, provocative uh, thought that uh, we don't want to anymore have have an architect that, an architect sorry that brings a project that he has carefully thought and that uh, brings it on a, on a place. But more we want to understand the ecosystem of a of a place to create something with it. And our question, uh, Tom and I was. Could we use this as as a tool to understand and measure and inform our uh, smart city projects? So it was a, an open question, but the one that I really liked because I could uh, dive into my favorite topics. So going onto social media, using uh, text mining. So this is a technique uh, to gather textual data and start to observe what is really happening on Amsterdam. So we, we gather data from the marine terrain, but also the plaque, anthropodoc, and other hotspots. Hot and um, it's been a really nice journey and results I'm happy with. Uh, so we made uh, three visualizations that you can play with uh, to see how uh, people relate through the places thanks to their hashtags. Uh, the evolution of them and personally I was really intrigued because I discovered things I didn't know about Amsterdam thanks to this project. For example, I didn't know that uh, the Marine Terrain was also the gay beach of Amsterdam and that uh, you had a really active um, uh, community of uh, queer people gathering around there, but that you also have frictions uh, between different communities, for example, the queer community, and then you have this strong, uh, this big ship of the Skeval Museum that can be seen in the is a outdated symbol of uh, Dutch colonies, police community that was really active on, on, on another place that was totally unexpected and they were engaging with the population. So this is for the, the people inhabiting the places, but then you also have the question of how, um, what we do in those places, what we use them for, and what are the representation we have about them. And this is really what inspires me. I've been replicating a similar idea for getting to understand how we live in the cities in times of Corona, in fact, looking into that data. And I, I think it's really interesting. I could, so using this technique, uh, going on Instagram, uh, I'm gathering a lot of uh, comments of photographies that I anonymize that. Uh, and then I look at what people say and how they how they had lived the lockdown, for example, observed different um, attitudes. Uh, you had like a consideration in front of emptiness. You had many posts just focusing on how empty are the streets going outside and then creating almost a genre of the void, uh, emptiness of the city. And then you had all the other uh representation of the city from the inside from your house we are inside now we are locked down and we stay at home and next to that i also um yeah in, in those two positions like i found a sort of romanticization almost of how the new city looked like but then you also had another trend that was quite contrary of people feeling really bad about it not posting anything related to the present, but then going to those famous hashtags like uh, Throwback Thursday and just putting in photos of really crowded Amsterdam and how we miss these days. And so this is something that I like to observe. And then, yeah. 
I do have a question about this because it's it's super interesting. But when you talk about looking at Instagram only and at representation, I want to ask you how representative is it actually? Because not everyone is using Instagram. We don't know. We we go well. You can see look at different data. For example, on another other project on the marine terrain, then I've seen that there were many. Um, dog owners on the marine terrain i don't know if they are on instagram maybe i should check but of course it's always just a partial representation of of the reality of course i'm from the young generation and i'm an instagrammer so for me it's it's a playground and uh what i like to uh, include in my project is is this dimension of how we live a, a place both online and offline so and how they they mix up and what the layers they are composed of uh but of course i i'm yeah i'm aware it's a really partial version of of the reality uh there is a big part of the population that does not have an online presence and that's totally fine um And that explains, for example, why an app like the Corona app is not working because it would mean, well, it's only one of the aspects, but um, yeah, uh, do all the people uh, have smartphones and are using apps and are they not the one to be protected from Corona? So, yeah. And, and, and another point I had about all this, this data collection part, we didn't talk at all about privacy and surveillance you know what uh, what are the risks you know of 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 having our data used like this and is it anonymous uh do we have a say in how that data is used could you tell us a bit more about that aspect of that data usage uh well we i would say that to have a say in that uh, it can be done uh at the level of the city maybe so you you really Uh, anytime you enter a station or a public place and there are cameras, then you really uh, uh, don't um, have many liberty to move out from that camera, that eye. But that these are the the, the questions um, that Tada are asking. I really recommend you to go and see their manifesto. Uh, they wrote a manifesto about, yes, how... Uh, well, six, I think, important questions that we can ask to be sure that when you're building a project with data, uh, you leave some, uh, you leave the possibility for the citizens to, for example, uh, opt out of the technology. Um, and that's why we are experimenting. There are places like the marine terrain uh, to experiment Um Um, we can test the data, we can test the technology, we can also not agree with it. Yeah, there's no easy option. I think that um, it's really important to act at the level of the municipalities. Uh, I think that you can do many things at that level because then you can have consultancy with the people and then you can decide whether or not uh, you want this technology for your city, for example. Um, and also you can ask uh, between different technologies which is the one that you prefer like for example are your data going to the cloud somewhere or are they stored locally and protected and uh, what guarantees do you have 
So the technical part of it, uh, the hardware part of it is also really important, even though I'm not an expert. But regarding social media, I would say that everything that you put there is publicly is more or less... Um, it is public. <laughs> so we all know about uh, the Cambridge uh, Analytica affair. Uh, for example, I'm on Instagram and recently I've been receiving uh, targeted ads to freeze my uh, oversights. So, you know, this, this kind of thing happens and how, yeah, uh, I've read an article recently about from the Algorithm Watch about how Facebook is using uh, discrimination based on the pictures on how to target uh, the people in the ad without the consent of the advertisers themselves. So, of course, we have to be careful. Well, uh, from my perspective, I agree to be on those platforms. You can always opt to not be on those platforms. And whenever I'm doing um, a research myself that is using this data, I, I make sure that I do not include anything that, could, uh, that is unnecessary for my project. For example, I want to know about a group or I want to know about a hashtag that is frequently used or about a habit or about a feeling, a sensation. But I don't know. I don't want to know that you, Janan, you were that day on the marine terrain. Even though I can do it, I can store your pictures very easily. Uh, but uh, it's part of my, you know, my procedure. It is data that I want to fully anonymize. I think that they're fun to play with, but it would not be fair for me as a researcher to link them back to their creators. I just wanted to make reference to a very interesting article which backs to 2016 um, and that we are going to link in the, sh in the show notes. Um, it's from the Wired magazine where um, Barack Obama was uh, invited to be guest editor. And there was a very interesting discussion between him and, and the director of MIT Media Lab on artificial intelligence and um, even on the pandemics, it's very interesting because you read it in 2020 and uh, <laughs> uh, you, you read that Obama in 2016 was very worried about, uh, was much more wor worried about the pandemic than uh, being invaded with tanks and uh, army. Um, but one interesting thing that, for example, the, the director of um, MIT uh, Media Lab said um, regarding who builds artificial intelligence, um, he said that predominantly is the white male who, who are doing that, uh, who build the core computer science around artificial intelligence and the perception, so he was saying this in 2016, but I'm not sure much has changed since then. Um, and there is this belief that the, uh, the artificial intelligence will help us solve all the problems, including so, uh, social and, and political problems. And this is very problematic because um, they will not. <laughs> you know, if you, if you leave the machine to, to, to solve the societal and, and political uh, uh, problems, uh, it's not... Uh, 
it's not okay. But um, it's it's a very interesting because he also raises the the, the question of um, uh, how do we build societal societal values into into artificial intelligence. And back then he was opening up these questions. Um, they didn't have answers to to that either back then. And it's something that um, it needs to. To, to be more and more in conversations, what kind of values do we also uh, create when we create these te- te- technologies? Because we will need to balance um, to balance these these moral decisions. He, they were giving the example of uh, the electric car, where, for example, you need to uh, you you are in the situation where you need to make a, a move and and uh, avoid killing a pedestrian, but by doing that you hit a, a wall and you die. And the moral question here for the machine that will have to make what decision it will take. So it's in this kind of um, way that that he speaks about what kind of values do do we bring. It's it's a very interesting. I will link it in the show notes for everyone to to read. I, I think it's really really interesting, uh, especially in a society where uh, we track data of workers. Uh, I was we were talking about academia, of course. You know that academic uh, success is measured through uh, publication, number of publications. Uh, but if you are wor- a worker in a warehouse, then maybe uh, your productivity is measured through. Um, how fast you are to pick up some products on uh, the food aisles. Um, and in both cases, in any of those jobs, is it how we want to measure uh, what is your worth in your job and if you're doing a qualitative job. And um, so I think it's important as data analysts to remember that um, we are the one generating the data that we are measured and how do we want to measure it and why. And yes. Didn't, we didn't answer all the questions, of course, because as we can see, this topic is a process. Again, we're going back to process. Everything is process. We are all in the learning process, of course, and we are all doing trying to work with data in different ways in our different sectors as well. I'm very happy to see all the work you do. And um, all these examples you gave, I think, were very inspiring for all of us. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a blast, really, to listen to you. Uh, Oho, uh, before you leave us, uh, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Where can they follow your work? Uh, You are on social media, please. Tell everyone where to follow you. I'm super open to collaborations at the moment uh, about those projects gathering, looking at social media data. Um, there is this Corona project I'm also interested in uh, looking at multilingualism uh, on Instagram and other social platforms or so something that is more uh, linguistic. But of course, if you're curious, if you're motivated, if you have ideas, uh, let's share um, and well thanks for having me it was a pleasure uh, for me too you can find me on my uh, LinkedIn uh, 
because I'm checking it uh, quite often. Uh, I'm on Twitter um, sometimes, <laughs> but I'm also now uh, building my own website, so you can find it. Uh, it's called aurore.rbind.io. It's Rbind is the uh, dedicated domain for the R users, uh, so this is where I'm hosting it. Um, it's under process, uh, but I would like to share more about my ongoing projects and uh, ideas. So uh, let's get in touch. It will all be in the show notes. Uh, we will put all the links, uh, the articles we talked about, uh, the social media profiles, everything will be uh, in our in our show notes we are happy to to have your questions your feedback um and yeah do follow us and if you like what you hear our discussions with our guests um please do do write us a feedback or a review it helps us uh, make the podcast more more visible and more reachable and accessible and it also uh, gives us the feeling that we're not speaking to the void <laughs> we don't speak into the void Jenna. <laughs>